0: Uh, in the information systems and analytics at MTSU and I direct graduate studies in that area. Uh, But uh, my my thing is uh, I'm the president or the CEO now they call me and the producer of a thing called the Wild Goose Festival. Wild Goose is a Celtic metaphor for the Holy Spirit and one of the things I'm trying to do in my life is find ways for the Spirit to just get absolutely freaking wild. Um, one of the things I've, I've learned over the years that, that uh, uh, all of my religion was in a box and it was all tied up tightly and the spirit just wanted to break it loose and uh, so, so I'm, I'm really focusing on the wild goose and being wild so I come to you in that particular row I want to say a couple of things to, to you as Grace Point folk and I know some of you are not Grace Point folk because you don't even know what that means yet um, but we want to invite you to be, this is a place where we are literally inventing the communities of faith of the future. And that's literally true. That's not ostentatious on our part to say, uh, in my role as the CEO of the wild goose festival, I get to be involved with almost everybody that's, that's engaged in what some people call the, uh, progressive faith community, the liberal left, uh, Truth of the matter is, even though I am a business school professor, I actually stand economically to the left of Bernie Sanders. So um, that really gives the economics department down in the MTSU a serious heartburn. (laughs) Yeah, that that whole idea about the so-called laws of economics, like that's just BS that they made up. um, (laughs) to keep jobs. I mean, that's the way most of it works, isn't it? So I just I, I want to not in a I want you to be aware, this is a transition week. Our lead pastor spoke last Sunday, uh, and he's in Atlanta today. Uh, And in addition to speaking at a church in Atlanta today, he he videoed or filmed three uh, sermons yesterday for an online thing that's being done, mostly around the the, the Mama Bears uh, community. Spends about 15 days a week in, um, a month I mean, in uh, Seattle, where he's, where he's leading a church that went too far and is trying to come back. Uh, because some of us did that. We became post-Christian and then we just became post. And we got out there on that far, far, far side and said, you know what, I'm out here and I thought it would be better than it is, but there's something missing. And so he's helping, helping lead East Lake back into a, uh, to a faith framework. Our faith framework is not exclusive. It doesn't mean I am and therefore you're not. It just means this is what I am. I happen to have a Christian frame of reference for the way I view the world. But I want you to know what Stan's doing because one thing I want you to do is embrace his ministry. Uh, How many of you follow Stan on Facebook and see the work that goes on? Has anybody here ever just sat down and wept after you read one of those stories? Those are real stories, folks. Those are, this is like real, real, real life. And so it's one of the great things that, that, that our founding pastor and lead pastor and, and now formal lead pastor, we just call him founder, is doing this work. And then next week, we have our new lead pastor, Josh, uh, Josh Scott coming. Uh, I'm in a situation where I get to talk to a lot of the folks who are writing the books. And when we began to look around for who could replace Stan, um, two persons I respect a lot, Doug Padgett and Brian McLaren, both had Josh Scott at the top of their list. Josh is really, really, really doing some amazing things. So so next week we come to a new lead pastor. A lot of folks are paying attention to what's going on here. There was a time in which we may have been one of the only places where people were paying attention to it, but now a lot of other folks are. And, and I, I want you to Take appropriate spiritual pride in that. Maybe that's sort of an anachronistic sort of way. But be aware that, that, that you've come through the doors of a mad scientist laboratory of sorts. Now, that doesn't mean you ought to be expended like a, like a, uh, like a lab rat. And uh, you know, we, we still want to have community, but, but we're experimenting and we're working on all of this. And I have to, to uh, I, I just want you to be aware of the role that Grace Point plays, literally around the world, and especially in North America. It's it's a really big deal, and thank you all for that. I need to tell you, for me, spirit or faith matters, I'm not even entirely comfortable using two words I've always used. Church kinda makes me a little queasy, and uh, prayer makes me a little anxious. So I've been trying to, like whenever I'll say, you may say, I'm having a difficult time, and I wanna lean out and say, I'll pray for you, but then I sort of feel like I'm lying because, well, you know, I just might not, and if I do, I might not have any idea why or if it matters, you know, so I've started calling like prayer. I say, when I meditate, I'll think of you. Now, there's probably a better way to do that. And I'm not advocating that you adopt my vocabulary. So as I speak today about about sort of the the way and the work of the church, I keep trying to figure out, are we talking about a faith community, a spirit community, or a church? Can I do Greek stuff? And and weirdly enough, I have a doctorate in business and a doctorate in religion, and I'm actually qualified to do Greek stuff, which, you know, for those of you who have like an English major, it's pretty much the equivalent of uselessness. Sorry to all my liberal arts siblings. (laughs) But boy, we sure do enjoy the books. Um, So it's a big deal for me, the the, the spirit community. Um, I, 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 like a lot of you all, I grew up in it. I got upset about it, I left it. I tried it solo. I was like, I I didn't wanna like not be, but I didn't wanna be with anybody else. Uh, It didn't work out very well. Uh, I have discovered that it's not practical for me to live every component of my life in community. Professionally, I live in community. Physically, I live in community. Intellectually, I live in community. And this very most important vital component I try to do by myself. We're actually beginning to learn, and many of you all are in the therapy world, uh, you, you know that we're beginning to learn that we weren't broken in isolation and we can't recover in isolation. So I want to let you know that I think being in community around faith matters is a pretty big deal, and it's made a lot of difference in my life, and I don't actually care what vocabulary you use uh, to to describe that, I just think it matters. Just as a side thing, since I've already talked to you about my anxiety around vocabulary, I'm gonna bring one more up today because I'm gonna read a lot of scripture text. Now the reason why I'm gonna do that is because, what day is it? Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. Now it's actually against the law to be an ordained minister and not do like certain sermons on certain days. I was ordained February 25th, 19, a long time ago, actually at Park Avenue Baptist Church where I could hit well, I could have hit a nine iron there, but I'm probably more like about a seven iron away now. But, but you know, it's like you're supposed to do it on a certain day, but in order for us to sort of flip this over, I've got to actually read some of this and point some things out. So one of the, one of the things that I'm noodling with, I'm not saying you should be there, okay? But one of the things I'm noodling with is the whole word worship. Like we like to use the metaphor of the father. And then progressives, we've gotten way out there and we'll say the mother. Um, But we still do some sort of parent model uh, in a lot of our thinking, right? Now, if you're a parent, you don't ever say, look at here, it's Sunday, it's sunshiny. I'm gonna be really PO'd if you all don't come over here, get down on your knees in front of me and go over and over and over like, oh, you're so cool, you're so cool. Um, You know, the the whole idea that, the whole reason why Christianity as an institution was created was somehow the other around worship seems to me to be a bit of an institutional projection. Uh, it's, it's, it just doesn't fit for me. So if we don't worship, which is a very vertical kind of a thing, what do we gather for? Well, I think we gather for this, for community. That doesn't mean there is no there. It just means there ain't the only there. Is that, am I making sense of all what I'm saying? And so if we think about this, the passage of the triumphal entry, that's that's one of the biggies where we have religious reengineering. I mean, if you read some of that stuff, you've got to say, do you really think, do you really think it was that way? It's like, no, we basically sort of impose some words on the text to sort of set up the system that kind of pays us off. I think, for example, um, thinking about this week, if Jesus were physically here, there'd be a lot of things Jesus would want to do. But one of the things he would probably say is, do we have a good public relations person in the audience? Triumphal entry. Do you actually know, Jesus would say, where this thing was going? (laughs) Yeah, if you'd have been sitting in my seat on that little donkey, knowing where you were heading or where you ended up, it wouldn't have been so triumphant. And how about that whole, that whole pitch we've been buying on Good Friday? I just, I, just, <laughs> I just got to figure Jesus wakes up on that Friday and says, they're gonna call it good, but you ought to be where I am. And I think while he's at it, he'd probably say, we need a new headshot, because I don't actually have blue eyes. Now, as I said, I don't often make direct references to long texts, but a lot of what I want to say today would be to maybe model for at least for my process on how I would look at this text to find something different than than maybe what I've always been um, sort of fed. Um, I see so much of this as kind of the privileged religious establishment. Frankly, a lot of it... um, This whole system, this whole process was a little fake. The Romans were occupying the land. They let the Jews play church, but only in a real limited sort of a way. And the irony is they were not only duped, they became the chief dupers, which is a little bit like the way we do it. A lot of privilege and posturing. So um, I, I want you to see the players in this triumphal entry, Jesus and his caravan. It was a bunch of them. It wasn't just Jesus. It wasn't just Peter hustling always to try to be close and John always to try to sort of suck up and do a favor and Judas to always try to figure out what the logistics were and manage the money. We think of the 12 disciples, but there were other persons in the group. In fact, there were a lot of other persons in the group. Uh, Facts of the matter is, we have very little record that, that Jesus was anywhere that Mary from Magdala wasn't. She would have been in that group. They walked from Jericho to Bethany. It's about 17 miles. And just as a weird parenthesis, I looked this up once upon a time. It's about the same distance as walking from downtown Gatlinburg up to what's the tall mountain? There's Leconte. It's about the same distance as walking from Gatlinburg to Leconte, but it's the same elevation change. So they literally come from down at sea level coming up to Jerusalem. And here's the other thing. We sort of see this stuff in isolation. They weren't the only people on the road. Just about everybody that could, would be on the road. So it was a crowded road. This is the same road that had a bad reputation for being a good place to get robbed. It's where the account of the so-called Good Samaritan takes place, but there was no robbing going on at this time because it was just too big of a crowd. So we we know about Jesus and his caravan. We know about the religious establishment a little bit. The Pharisees play a really big role in this. The Pharisees were the people that, uh, ironically, they were the progressives compared to the Sadducees. And it's like those Pharisees will scare the crap out of you. Uh, And and so the Sadducees must have just blown you away. But they were clearly engaged in religious uh, activity. And then we had these Jewish persons who were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, I'm just wondering, by the way, I'm wondering if Jesus gave any thought to skipping this year. I mean, for, we know of, of the recorded accounts, we know that Jesus was there when he was 12. We know he was there in all three years of his, of his quote, public ministry. John 2 and John 7 records that for us. So this was kind of a ritual and a regular thing. Uh, but, but you know he, he decided to come along But these Jewish persons on pilgrimage, think about this and see if there's any parallels to our life. They were going to do their thing, yet they were a colonized minority under siege by an occupying army. It's really important, if you want to get where I'm going with this, to get a sense of how oppressed, how not enough, how not okay these people were. Also remember that except for a really short period in their ancestral history around Solomon and David, they had been occupied and owned for all of their generations. Egypt and Assyria, Babylon and Persia, Greece and now Rome, they had always been owned. So their fathers had been owned and their mothers had been owned and their grandmothers and their grandmothers' grandmother and their grandmothers' grandmother had been owned. So these were people used to a cloud over their head in a cloud in their life. I like to imagine thinking about this group, some older person doing one of those back in my day stories. Can you imagine if you'd have been there on that day and you reached a later stage in your life and you were reflecting back on your Passover trips? Said, so I remember one time we went there. My thought was, well, here we are again. Ever since I was a little boy, We'd come to this gathering, it's the annual religious spasm we call Passover, and I wasn't too excited to be back. We'd already found all of our favorite camping spots, because that's what they would do. They would come in and they'd meet folks that they would only see once a year in Florida or something like that, and, uh, and sort of set up and, and connect. Everybody in Jerusalem with a nickel was trying to turn it into two nickels in any crude and crass and loud way possible. I think a lot of times in these accounts, we don't hear the noise. We don't smell the smells. You couldn't get good sleep because we were crammed in people and animals and noises and smells. But this year was destined to be different. The record is passed on through the Bible can be a little untidy. Is that a polite way of saying it? I believe former Archbishop of Canterbury called it an untidy record, a messy record. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I always thought, well, look at here. There's only two, quote, miracles recorded in all four of the gospels, the feeding and the resurrection. And I'm thinking if I were gonna write a a book of propositional truths, I'd get everybody together and make dadgum sure we could figure out the facts of those biggies. But the facts don't exactly match. Who saw first, who said this, who was there? You know. So I asked myself this question. Does that me- messy record make it hard for me to believe? No, actually, the messiness makes it much easier for me to believe. The record of my faith tradition was so sanitized, so engineered, that it raised more questions than it provided answers. And then I began to realize that the answer per se is not even the answer, but rather the answer is the experience. So I want to just read and comment on this text, on this fairly um, typical passage for this time of the year. And the reason I want to do it this way is to make sure we sort of get what was going on in these people's lives so that we can perhaps see some similarities to our lives. So I'll pick up, uh, my favorite of the gospel writers is John because he's generally much less concerned with you know, uh, sort of a political agenda in my opinion. So uh, in chapter 11, I'll pick up with verse 45 and 48. I don't know if they want to put those up there. Yeah, they're going to do that for me. Thank you. Scripture says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now keep in mind, this is still all Jew to Jew. This is like family to family, so to speak. We're not dealing across the great barriers and boundaries of of tribal conflict. This is all sort of in-house. Yeah, the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So what are we accomplishing, they ask. Here's this man performing many signs. If you let him go on like this everyone will believe in him. <laughs> You've never heard a statement of more insular religious privilege than what is about to be stated here. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. What would you hold on to for your privilege? What would you what would you like what would you like to say you got to have and you would give up your so far. Well, the religious community might say our religious structures, our institutions. The way we go about it, the way we prop it all up, skipping a few verses down into verse 53. This, this, by the way, they had come to Bethany, which is a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. They'd gone to the house where Lazarus stayed. They got in a lot of trouble because The record says Lazarus was raised from the dead. They didn't seem to mind too much parlor tricks like the water into wine and stuff. But if you go to messing with graves, it just really kind of screwed their heads up. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now get this, there's a specific intentional commitment to take the life of Jesus. This is not like random walking along and he said something or did something that provoked someone. This was an intentional commitment. Design it says, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Now think about this, he's decided to like go into hiding, but in a few days we're supposed to think he orchestrated a parade. So instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. They stood in the temple courts. They asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? They were anticipating Jesus was coming, the ones that knew who he was. But the chief priest and Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And then six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany. Jumping down to verse 9 through 11 in chapter 12. So he's at Bethany, and meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews, still all in house, found that Jesus was there and came. It's a little bit of a circus. It's like you're in here for this religious thing. You're all piled up and crammed up. You're trying to occupy some time. You got some ritual you've got to do. And you've heard Jesus is going to be a couple of miles outside of town. And oh, by the way, the guy raised from the dead is going to be there. Let's go see what he looks like. I mean, does he still like have like grave cloth marks or something on him? I mean, that would be a pretty good system, I would think. It was like, I mean, in all sincerity, if I were to say to you, you know, a couple miles down the road where you got a guy who had been raised from the dead and you had nothing else to do, your curiosity might provoke you just to go take a look. So they went down there by the droves. (sighs) Got Lazarus in trouble now. The chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Guilt by association there. Then in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Again, I'm thinking... I'm hiding. Maybe I could sneak in the side. I want to kind of do my ritual requirements. They heard that he was on his way to Jerusalem and they took palm branches and went out meeting him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, if I were a traditional preacher, I would do something here now about the fact that some of the very people that said Hosanna on Sunday said crucify on Friday. And I would talk about hypocrites. They weren't hypocrites, they were just humans. Haven't figured out how to say this, but I need you to let me take a second to figure out how to say it. This is another occasion of the religious institution imposing a cult of purity. By that I mean, in this case, it's an intellectual purity. Have you ever been caught in that thing of like, you're for me or you're against me? Stand up or sit down, get in or get out. We just do it that way. We draw all kinds of dang hard lines. And who lives that well with hard lines? I don't, I don't think many, of us do. So maybe the church of the future will be a little less preoccupied with drawing hard lines and a little more accepting of just humans. Sometimes they're one way and sometimes they're the other. Sometimes their circumstances dictate this and sometimes their circumstances dictate that. But this parade broke out. Now, I'm, I'm I don't want to offend those of you who are we're on, not on the same page about biblical interpretation. I think for me, it's a little reverse engineering. It's like, okay, he comes to town. This is a pretty good sized hill. You basically go down the hill. This parade, by the way, had to wind its way down a sort of a circuitous road, goes past a garden called Gethsemane. And we would be led to believe, not just allowed, provoked to believe that this was part of some sort of great and majestic. Ordeal, that through all of the ages and all of time, there was an appointment that day on the side of the Mount of Olives coming out of Bethany that Jesus would go out and he would go in there and they'd find a donkey. Or was it a donkey or two donkeys? Or did they go find it here or did they go find it there? Because if you read all four accounts, there's a little bit of ambiguity around that. I'm just telling you, for me, I don't care whether the parade was orchestrated by the ages. I don't care whether it was prophetic truth. They just had a dang parade. Imagine you're this oppressed, colonized minority. You're living your life on a little short stream. And here comes this guy that's stirring up a little stuff. And you just decided to break out in a parade. Why did they have a parade? It could have been prophetic requirements. I just think they had a parade because they needed one. You ever just need a parade? Ooh, Lord, bless the Lord. I needed a parade. I, I, I project my politics a little bit, I guess, but I needed the parade several times over the last two and a half years. Yeah, sometimes we just need a parade. You know what else? This is the sacrilege part. Lee, I think, I think Jesus went along with it because he kind of wanted a parade too. He thought it'd be kind of, he needed a parade. I mean, think about it. They've already got a, a, you know, a number on your head. They're going to kill your friends. And you're going on in there because you're gonna observe and you're like, whew, I'm just taking a little ride on this little low donkey. And they start hollering Hosanna and putting palm fronds down on the ground in front of me. And Jesus turns into the Santa Claus float in the Christmas parade. (laughs) I don't think that was like some big divine plan. I just think it was humans happening and having life in front of one another. And I just want you to know that the church ought to be a place where humans can just happen and have life together. I love the story of the parade just kind of breaking out in the context of oppression and the shadow of fear, in spite of the occupying army and the religious co-conspirators. I think it just happened. So this parade reminds me of this piece I want to begin to leave with you. I'm friends with a fellow named Otis Moss III. Otis is listed by by, um, CNN as one of the 12 greatest preachers alive. Um, Stan asked me to preach today, and I was very anxious about doing it. Didn't think I could or would. I said I would sit with the text overnight and see I sat with the text, literally laid with the text, had my big old black Bible in bed with me just in case God wasn't really sure where to find me. (laughs) I woke up at five o'clock in the morning having to pee and some of you all know what I mean. (laughs) If you don't, you will. I came back, I was like, there's nothing there. I I don't hear a word from the spirit I said, as soon as, soon as I'm sure he stands up, I'm going to call him and say, Not for me. Besides the big black Bible, I'd taken about 11 or 12 books because I'm a booky kind of person to bed. And out of 11 or 12 books, the only one that lay yet still in bed was one that Otis had written. And for some reason, I flipped open the book, and there was this, this account Otis pastors at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Some of you that follow politics may remember there was a preacher there named Dr. Jeremiah Wright that was, this is Barack's uh, home church. I worked for Barack uh, back in the day, and so I could actually call him Barack in those days. But this was President Obama's home church. And you may remember that Reverend Wright stirred up some stuff and got in a lot of trouble. But, But if you know that community, he's near a saint. So... Otis came as the preacher, and he said it was a terrible time. It was a terrible, terrible time. So they would have sometimes 100 death threats and bombing threats a week at their church. Probably in the name of Jesus, by the way. (laughs) Because like Jake and Elwood, the Blues Brothers, we know there's absolutely nothing that can stop people who are on a mission from God. So he says they're doing this time and I know his children, Michaela's a teenager now. Um, so they went to bed and about three o'clock in the morning, they heard a noise. And Monica, Otis's wife said, "Do you hear that? He said, yeah. She said, you, you go find out what it was. So he got up and went through the house with his rod and his staff in his hand to uh, find out what that was. He said the, the rod and the staff had the words Louisville and slugger on it. Um, so he was going to find this noise that was creating such panic and fear. And he looked and looked and he heard it again. And he went upstairs. And there in McKay, he opened the door to Michaela's bedroom where the noise was coming from. And his little six-year-old daughter, he says, as he describes it, with her berets on and her pigtails flying, was dancing. Dancing hard. You know the difference. I mean, sometimes you just sort of, and sometimes you just throw it down. (laughs) We're going to talk about this in a minute because you may not know this about me, but I'm a really good dancer. (laughs) That was not a joke. (laughs) I was (laughs) totally sincere. It's just true. So Otis says, I got a little terse with her. It's 3 a.m., Michaela, get back to bed and she kept dancing. Finally, she said, look, daddy, look, daddy, I'm dancing in the dark. So the message I want to say to you, like those persons that just erupted in a parade in spite of all the things that were around them, I want to say to you that the church ought to celebrate our dancing in the dark. It ought to enable us to dance in the dark. Now, most of my life, I've Given messages on how do we eliminate the darkness? How do we shine a light that pierces or penetrates the darkness? And I'm not saying we shouldn't, I'm not saying make peace with the darkness. We need to, to battle and fight the darkness. I was yesterday in one of the most unusual places to have a battle with darkness. I was on the obscure road outside of Lynchburg, and it wasn't a pilgrimage to Jack, I was in Presbyterian, my ordination credentials are with a medium-sized Presbyterian body. And I'm honorably retired, which mostly means I don't have to go to that crap. But I'm involved with a group of younger, uh, I like to call them piss and vinegar ministers, who are ready to storm hell with water pistols. And they needed me there. So I went down to Lynchburg, and then went about eight miles out in the country And we're there in one of those kind of churches where you've never seen so much cake. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, I had had to come home and go to bed last night. My sugar was over 300. a little diabetic, but. So I'm down there, and why was I down there? And I'm working on this whole darkness thing. Well, in my denomination, we have a person from a presbytery over in Arkansas, properly named Arkansas Presbytery, and he's created a memorial, the purpose of which to ask our governing body, our general assembly, to make clear that marriage is only between a man and a woman. He likes to, by the way, talk a lot about complementarity. Y'all you know what I'm talking about in that conversation? You know, pegs and hoes? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure He's not always using the same pegs and the same hose the way it was all supposed to be in according to himself. But anyway, <laughs> I was going to try not to say that. <laughs> but it just came out. So, I mean, they were there and they, they had like people visiting our presbytery from, from several other presbyteries. And there's all kinds of rules about who can speak on the floor of presbytery and all that sort of thing. So I'm down there for this fight because we are not going to endorse this. But you look around, the average age was way older than me. The average hair color was blue. People who no longer go to the beauty shop to get their hair fixed, they go to the beauty shop to get their hair set. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm in like a group of old, and I don't mean, I grew up country, but I'm in a group of mostly old country people with good cake. And we're about to battle on the definition of marriage. Looks like a dead bang loser to me. I was actually contemplating, can I stay in the church that, that I was born in if we do this? I mean, how, what do I do? Do I stand up at the end of this meeting and ask them to rescind my ordination credentials? Do I throw myself on the, the, the floor and cry? And I mean, what do I do? So we go through this stuff and this person advocating this piece just insisted on getting up to speak several times. Have you ever been in one of those situations politically where the best thing you can do is shut up and let them go? So at some point, he, he, we, we voted it down, and at some point he turned to the audience and asked another question. And the audience literally shouted back at him, no. And I was shocked. Truth of the matter is, a few of the people that shouted back at him no, knew what the memorial said. I know what it said. I said no because I know what it said and I know what it meant. But a whole bunch of the people didn't know. They didn't know what it said but they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was not speaking to them in love. And, and maybe they'd never, never even come to the point where this conversation was a conversation they had had. But I was so encouraged to see this little remnant, this little piece of the faith community that, that said no and said it loudly. And the guy starts to like move in and the, and, 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 and the moderator says, your question was asked and answered, you're out of order now, sit down. And I would have just to jump up and turn a country cartwheel right there in, in the middle of that place. Not so much because we weren't going to endorse the memorial, but because my aunt, they, it wasn't my aunt, but you know what I'm saying, metaphorically, my great aunt, my grandfather, they were there. That's kind of who we were and where we came from, but they knew goodness and they knew love. And yeah, we, 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 we got to work on this darkness thing some, so I'm not saying don't fight the fights and don't. Don't worry about the darkness, but I am saying, lest we find ourselves weary and doing well, let's just sometimes give ourselves permission to just dance in the dark. Somebody invariably will say, well, how do you do that? Well, since I am an expert dancer, I'm going to tell you. Cause I'll be dancing and somebody say, could you teach me how to dance? Could you show me those steps? You dance with your gut, not with your brain. You ever been there and you'd be like trying to do your, your dance and you see the person across from you and you see them like counting? If you're counter, I'm sorry for you. Set yourself free. Nobody gives a crap whether you got the right thing before you did your dosi in turn. Just let it go. See, I think we come to a place like this sometimes when we don't feel like dancing. Uh, I think sometimes we come whenever we're just not when it's not on a radar screen. I think sometimes sometimes I need to dance when I don't even hear the music. What do we do about that? See, part of what I think the community of faith enables us to do, it gives us permission to dance. It celebrates our dancing. It applauds our dancing. It says dance on, and your dancing inspired me, and I want to dance with you. But sometimes we just can't get up to dance, and somebody has to help us dance. Lee, could you help somebody dance? Yeah, Lee would help you dance. Everybody in here, look around and find, would you help somebody dance that can't hear the music? Would you help somebody dance that's, that's put down, that's stepped on, that's stepped over, that's left out? Of course you would. That's what we come together for. We won't let people miss out of that. Dance with your gut, not your brain, and just dance. Let her go. Spiritually, whatever you want to do. I don't know even know what you call it. I know that I like to dance in the spirit even more than I like to dance in the honky-tonks. And that's a lot. Thank you all a lot, Matt.